Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Clairvoyance. What clairvoyance is? One. Clairvoyance means literally nothing more than clear seeing, and it is a word which has been sorely misused and even degraded so far as to be employed to describe the trickery of a mountebank in a variety show. Even in its more restricted sense, it covers a wide range of phenomena, differing so greatly in character that it is not easy to give a definition of the word, which shall be at once succinct and accurate. It has been called spiritual vision, But no rendering could well be more misleading than that, for in the vast majority of cases there is no faculty connected with it which has the slightest claim to be honored by so lofty a name. For the purpose of this treatise, we may perhaps define it as the power to see what is hidden from ordinary physical sight. It will be as well to premise that it is very frequently, though by no means always, accompanied by what is called clairaudience, or the power to hear what would be inaudible to the ordinary physical ear. And we will, for the nonce, take our title as covering this faculty also, in order to avoid the clumsiness of perpetually using two long words where one will suffice. Let me make two points clear before I begin. First, I am not writing for those who do not believe that there is such a thing as clairvoyance, nor am I seeking to convince those who are in doubt about the matter. In so small a work as this, I have no space for that. Such people must study the many books containing lists of cases or make experiments for themselves along mesmeric lines. I am addressing myself to the better instructed class who know that clairvoyance exists and are sufficiently interested in the subject to be glad of information as to its methods and possibilities. And I would assure them that what I write is the result of much careful study and experiment, and that though some of the powers which I shall have to describe may seem new and wonderful to them, I mention no single one of which I have not myself seen examples. Secondly, Though I shall endeavor to avoid technicalities as far as possible, yet as I am writing in the main for students of theosophy, I shall feel myself at liberty sometimes to use for brevity's sake 
and without detailed explanation, the ordinary theosophical terms with which I may safely assume them to be familiar. Should this little book fall into the hands of any to whom the occasional use of such terms constitutes a difficulty, I can only apologize to them and refer them for these preliminary explanations to any elementary theosophical work, such as Mrs. Annie Besant's Ancient Wisdom or Man and His Bodies. The truth is that the whole theosophical system hangs together so closely, and its various parts are so interdependent, that to give a full explanation of every term used would necessitate an exhaustive treatise on theosophy as a preface even to this short account of clairvoyance. Before a detailed explanation of clairvoyance can usefully be attempted, however, it will be necessary for us to devote a little time to some preliminary considerations in order that we may have clearly in mind a few broad facts as to the different planes on which clairvoyant vision may be exercised and the conditions which render its exercise possible. We are constantly assured in theosophical literature that all these higher faculties are presently to be the heritage of mankind in general, that the capacity of clairvoyance, for example, lies latent in every one, and that those in whom it already manifests itself are simply in that one particular, a little in advance of the rest of us. Now this statement is a true one, and yet it seems quite vague and unreal to the majority of people, simply because they regard such a faculty as something absolutely different from anything they have yet experienced, and feel fairly confident that they themselves, at any rate, are not within measurable distance of its development. It may help to dispel this sense of unreality if we try to understand that clairvoyance, like so many other things in nature, is mainly a question of vibrations, and is in fact nothing but an extension of powers which we are all using every day of our lives. We are living all the while surrounded by a vast sea of mingled air and ether, the latter interpenetrating the former as it does all physical matter. It's important to remember back then they did believe scientifically that there was this substance called ether, and they don't mean it in the sense of the New Age way we describe, like the etheric or etheric links. They mean it in a physical, liquid, invisible liquid sense that everything passed through this ether in space and time, um, which, of course, has been overthrown since Einstein and them. The latter interpenetrating the former as it does all physical matter, and it is chiefly by means of vibrations in that vast sea of matter that impressions reach us from the outside. This much we all know, but it may perhaps never have occurred to many of us that the number of these vibrations to which we are capable of responding is in reality quite infinitesimal. Up among the exceedingly rapid vibrations which affect the ether, and in this sense, there would also, of course, be referring to the spiritual ether. So back then they referred to it thinking that it was either larger than it was, contained more reality than it was, or they were speaking of it in a spiritual sense as opposed to a physical sense. And some of them conflated the two. So you have these three models of understanding ether from back then. And in certain cases, like here, it refers to sort of the spiritual interpretation or perception of the spiritual ether, what you might describe more as a numinous quality as opposed to a physical substance. But this is, of course, all still the uh, edges of the frontier of the discovery and the blending between spiritual sensation and 
physical science. So Leadbeater is saying, up among the exceedingly rapid vibrations which affect the ether, there is a certain small section, a very small section, to which the retina of the human eye is capable of responding. And these particular vibrations produce in us the sensation which we call light. This is the key part. That is to say, we are capable of seeing only those objects from which light of that particular kind can either issue or be reflected. In exactly the same way, the tympanum of the human ear is capable of responding to a very certain, very small range of comparatively low vibrations, slow enough to affect the air which surrounds us. And so the only sounds which we can hear are those made by objects which are able to vibrate at some rate within that particular range. In both cases, it is a matter perfectly well known to science that there are large numbers of vibrations both above and below these two sections, and that consequently there is much light that we cannot see, and there are many sounds to which our ears are deaf. In the case of light, the action of these higher and lower vibrations is easily perceptible in the effects produced by the actinic rays at one end of the spectrum and the heat rays at the other. As a matter of fact, there exist vibrations of every conceivable degree of rapidity, filling the whole vast space intervening between the slow sound waves and the swift light waves. Nor is even that all, for there are undoubtedly vibrations slower than those of sound, and a whole infinity of them which are swifter than those known to us as light. So we begin to understand that the vibrations by which we see and hear are only like two tiny groups of a few strings selected from an enormous harp of practically infinite extent, and we think how much we have been able to learn and infer from the use of those minute fragments. We see vaguely what possibilities might lie before us if we were enabled to utilize the vast and wonderful whole. You see this, of course, currently today, playing out in the perception of dark matter as we near that accomplishment. Another fact which needs to be considered in this connection is that different human beings vary considerably, though within relatively narrow limits, in their capacity of response even to the very few vibrations which are within reach of our physical senses. I'm not referring to the keenness of sight or of hearing that enables one man to see a fainter object or hear a slighter sound than another. It is not in the least a question of strength of vision, but of extent of susceptibility. I like that, extent of susceptibility. For example, if anyone will take a good bisulfide of carbon prison and by its means throw a clear spectrum on a sheet of white paper and then get a number of people to remark the, upon the paper the extreme limits of the spectrum as it appears to them, he is fairly certain to find that their powers of vision differ appreciably. Some will see the violet extending much farther than the majority do. Others will perhaps see rather less violet than most, while gaining a corresponding extension of vision at the red end. Some few there will perhaps be who can see farther than ordinary at both ends, and these will almost certainly be what we call sensitive people, susceptible, in fact, to a greater range of vibrations than are most men of the present day. 
in Waldorf High School, they would use prisms to show us these prism spectrums and pointed out Steiner's uh, observation that Newton had argued against, but then Steiner proved. In hearing, the same difference can be tested by taking some sound, which is just not too high to be audible, on the very verge of audibility, as it were, and discovering how many among a given number of people are able to hear it. The squeak of a bat is a familiar instance of such a sound, and experiment will show that on a summer evening, when the whole air is full of the shrill, needle-like cries of these little animals, quite a large number of men will be absolutely unconscious of them and unable to hear anything at all. <laughs> so you gotta, you got to love this old-school <laughs> masculine language. I can handle it. It's just, it's just it's overwhelming. <laughs> Oh, men, what have you done? Now these examples clearly show that there is no hard and fast limit to man's power of response to either etheric or aerial vibrations, but that some among us already have that power to a wider extent than others. And it will even be found that the same man's capacity varies on different occasions. It is therefore not difficult for us to imagine that it might be possible for a person to develop this power and thus in time to learn to see much that is invisible to their fellow men. <laughs> and hear, what, hear much that is inaudible to them since we know perfectly well that enormous numbers of these additional vibrations do exist and are simply, as it were, awaiting recognition. The experiments with the Röntgen rays give us an example of the startling results which are produced when even a very few of these additional vibrations are brought within human ken, and the transparency to these rays of many substances hitherto considered opaque, at once shows us one way, at least, in which we may explain such elementary clairvoyance as is involved in reading a letter inside a closed box, or describing those present in an adjoining room. To learn to see by means of the Röntgen rays, in addition to those ordinarily employed, would be quite sufficient to enable anyone to perform a feat of magic of this order. So far, we have thought only of an extension of the purely physical senses of a person. And when we remember that a person's etheric body is in reality merely the finer part of their physical frame, and that therefore all their sense organs contain a large amount of etheric matter of various degrees of density, the capacities of which are still practically latent in most of us, we shall see that even if we confine ourselves to this line of development alone, there are enormous possibilities of all kinds already opening out before us. But besides and beyond all this, we know that man possesses an astral and a mental body, and each of which can, in process of time, be aroused into activity, and will respond in turn to the vibrations of the matter of its own plane, thus opening up before the ego as he learns to function through these vehicles to entirely new and far wider worlds of knowledge and power. Now, these new worlds, though they are all around us and freely interpenetrate one another, 
are not to be thought of as distinct and entirely unconnected in substance, but rather as melting the one into the other, the lowest astral forming a direct series with the highest physical, just as the lowest mental, in its turn, forms a direct series with the highest astral. We are not called upon, in thinking of them, to imagine some new and strange kind of matter, but simply to think of the ordinary physical kind as subdivided so very much more finely, and vibrating so very much more rapidly, as to introduce us to what are practically entirely new conditions and qualities. It is not, then, difficult for us to grasp the possibility of a steady and progressive extension of our senses, so that both by sight and by hearing we may be able to appreciate vibrations far higher and far lower than those which are ordinarily recognized. A large section of these additional vibrations will still belong to the physical plane and will merely enable us to obtain impressions from the etheric part of that plane, which is at present as a closed book to us. Such impressions will still be received through the retina of the eye. Of course, they will affect its etheric rather than its solid matter, but we may nevertheless regard them as still appealing only to an organ specialized to receive them, and not to the whole surface of the etheric body. There are some abnormal cases, however, in which other parts of the etheric body respond to these additional vibrations as readily as, or even more readily than, the eye. Such vagaries are explicable in various ways, but principally as effects of some partial astral development, for it will be found that the sensitive parts of the body almost invariably correspond with one or other of the chakras, or centers of vitality in the astral body. And he actually uses the form chakrams. And though if astral consciousness be not yet developed, these centers may not be available on their own plane. They are still strong enough to stimulate into keener activity the etheric matter which they interpenetrate. When we come to deal with the astral senses themselves, the methods of working are very different. The astral body has no specialized sense organs, a fact which perhaps needs some explanation, since many students who are trying to comprehend its physiology seem to find it difficult to reconcile with the statements that have been made as to the perfect interpenetration of the physical body by astral matter, the exact correspondence between the two vehicles, and the fact that every physical object has necessarily its astral counterpart. We're, you're very much seeing here in this theosophy the playing out of the emerald tablet as above, so below in regards all objects in manifested reality. Everything you can see or think or touch has its own reflection in this above of this hermetic theosophical <laughs> theosophy. Now, all of these statements are true, and yet it is quite impossible for people who do not normally see astrally to misunderstand them. Every order of physical matter has its corresponding order of astral matter in constant association with it, not to be separated from it except by a very considerable exertion of occult force, and even then only to be held apart from it as long as force is being indefinitely exerted to that end. But for all that, the relation of the astral particles one to another is far looser than is the case with their physical correspondences. 
in a bar of iron, for example, we have a mass of physical molecules in the solid condition, that is to say, capable of comparatively little change in their relative positions, though each vibrating with immense rapidity in its own sphere. The astral counterpart of this consists of what we often call solid astral matter, that is, matter of the lowest and densest subplane of the astral, but nevertheless, its particles are constantly and rapidly changing their relative position, moving among one another as easily as those of a liquid on the physical plane might do, so that there is no permanent association between any one physical particle and that amount of astral matter which happens at any given moment to be acting as its counterpart. So in a lot of hermetic, uh, contemporary hermetic thought, you would have the argument that the 30th ether is the closest to the physical plane, and therefore, for example, the easiest to scry or travel into. This is equally true with respect to the astral body of man, which for our purpose at the moment we may regard as consisting of two parts, the denser aggregation which occupies the exact position of the physical body and the cloud of rarer astral matter which surrounds that aggregation. In both these parts, and between them both, there is going on at every moment of time the rapid intercirculation of the particles which has been described, so that as one watches the movement of the molecules in the astral body, one is reminded of the appearance of those in fiercely boiling water. This being so, it will be readily understood that though any given organ of the physical body must always have as its counterpart a certain amount of astral matter, it does not retain the same principles for more than a few seconds at a time, and consequently there is nothing corresponding to the specialization of physical nerve matter into optic or auditory nerves and so on. So that though the physical eye or ear has undoubtedly always its counterpart of astral matter, that particular fragment of astral matter is no more and no less capable of corresponding to the vibrations which produce astral sight or astral hearing than any other part of the vehicle. It must never be forgotten that though we constantly have to speak of astral sight or astral hearing in order to make ourselves intelligible, all that we mean by those expressions is the faculty of responding to such vibrations as convey to the man's consciousness when he is functioning in his astral body information of the same character as that conveyed to him by his eyes and ears while he is in the physical body. But in the entirely different astral conditions, specialized organs are not necessary for the attainment of this result. There is matter in every part of the astral body which is capable of such response, and consequently the man functioning in that vehicle sees equally well objects behind him, beneath him, above him, without needing to turn his head. There is, however, another point, which it would hardly be fair to leave entirely out of account, and that is the question of the chakrams referred to above. Theosophical students are familiar with the idea of the existence in both the astral and the etheric bodies of man of certain centers of force which have to be vivified in turn by the sacred serpent fire as the man advances in evolution. Though these cannot be described as organs in the ordinary sense of the word, 
since it is not through them that the man sees or hears, as he does in physical life through eyes and ears. Yet it is apparently very largely upon their vivification that the power of exercising these astral senses depends, each of them as it is developed, giving to the whole astral body the power of response to a new set of vibrations. Neither have these centers, however, any permanent collection of astral matter connected with them. They are simply vortices in the matter of the body, vortices through which all the particles pass in turn, points, perhaps, at which the higher force from planes above impinges upon the astral body. Even this description gives but a very partial idea of their appearance, for they are in reality four-dimensional vortices, so that the force which comes through them and is the cause of their existence seems to well up from nowhere. But at any rate, since all particles in turn pass through each of them, it will be clear that it is thus possible for each in turn to evoke in all the particles of the body the power of receptivity to a certain set of vibrations, so that all the astral senses are equally active in all parts of the body. The vision of the mental plane is again totally different, for in this case we can no longer speak of separate senses, such as sight and hearing, but rather have to postulate one general sense which responds so fully to the vibrations reaching it that when any object comes within its cognition, it at once comprehends it fully, and as it were, sees it, hears it, feels it, and knows all there is to know about it by the one instantaneous operation. I think this is a very important point. I find a lot, especially in scrying and traveling in the spirit vision or astral travel, as you might call it, even in the uh, the developmental stages of mental projection where you're just visualizing yourself getting up and moving around or seeing things, the difference and step between the visualization of, of that and the actual sensations of that full experience are subtle but significant. And that's really, I think, also what Leadbeater is getting at here when he talks about in that mental plane, you comprehend things fully when you encounter them, and it, it is really all your senses, none of them, and all at once at the same time. It It is a mental or spiritual sensation. I think it's a lot what uh, Rudolf Steiner would call knowing on the soul level, and it's definitely an extension of what simply we think of as intuition. Yet even this wonderful faculty differs in degree only and not in kind from those which are at our command at the present time. On the mental plane, just as on the physical, impressions are still conveyed by means of vibrations traveling from the object seen to the seer. On the buddhic plane, we meet for the first time with a quite new faculty having nothing in common with those of which we have spoken. For there a man cognizes any object by an entirely different method in which external vibrations play no part. The object becomes part of himself and he studies it from the inside instead of from the outside. But with this power, ordinary clairvoyance has nothing to do. And uh, we can talk later about what C.W. Leadbeater means by the Buddhic plane. As you know from theosophy, they, they, rather than delve into the depths of Western mysticism, they delved into Eastern mysticism to appropriate terms and ideas uh, due to the, really their lack of knowledge of the same things in the West. 
the development either entire or partial of any one of these faculties would come under our definition of clairvoyance, the power to see what is hidden from ordinary sight. I should say, of course, also, it's not just because they had a lack of knowledge of Western mysticism, but it was also en vogue. Of course, was it en vogue, and that's why they dove into it, or did the vogue partly come about because they were diving into it? It was a popular cycle going on at that time. That's what really matters. But these faculties may be developed in various ways, and it will be well to say a few words as to these different lines. We may presume that if it were possible for a man to be isolated during his evolution from all but the gentlest outside influences, and to unfold from the beginning in perfectly regular and normal fashion, he would probably develop his senses in regular order also. The modernist assumptions are thickly at play here. He would find his physical senses gradually extending their scope until they responded to all the physical vibrations of etheric as well as of denser matter. Then, in orderly sequence, would come sensibility to the coarser part of the astral plane. And presently, the finer part also would be included until, in due course, the faculty of the mental plane dawned in its turn. In real life, however, development so regular as this is hardly ever known, and many a man has occasional flashes of astral consciousness without any awakening of etheric vision at all, and this irregularity of development is one of the principal causes of man's extraordinary liability to error in matters of clairvoyance, a liability from which there is no escape except by a long course of careful training under a qualified teacher. And, of course, we do see many people just diving off the deep end into the astral plane, uh, not knowing how training and filtration and testing lead to clear vision in, a, in its proper sense. Um, at the same time, go crazy with it. Have fun. But I've never tested anyone any good at it and found they could do much if they hadn't done the basic sort of exercises most of us do and play with. Students of theosophical literature are well aware that there are such teachers to be found, that even in this materialistic 19th century, the old saying is still true, that when the pupil is ready, the master is ready also, and that in the hall of learning, when he is capable of entering there, the disciple will always find his master. They are well aware also that only under such guidance can a man develop his latent powers in safety and with certainty since they know how fatally easy it is for the untrained clairvoyant to deceive himself as to the meaning and value of what he sees, or even absolutely to distort his vision completely in bringing it down into his physical consciousness. It does not follow that even the pupil who is receiving regular instruction in the use of occult powers will find them unfolding themselves exactly in the regular order which was suggested above as probably ideal. His previous progress may not have been such as to make this for him the easiest or most desirable road, but at any rate he is in the hands of one who is perfectly competent to be his guide in spiritual development, and he rests in perfect contentment that the way along which he is taken will be that which is the best way for him. Well, that's quite the assumption and trust to place in a teacher who, um, well, 
there's some bad teachers out there. Another great advantage he gains is that whatever faculties he may acquire are definitely under his command and can be used fully and constantly when he needs them for theosophical work. <laughs> they were definitely trying to rewrite the entire spiritual world as a theosophical one in, in a one grand unit, unified vision. Very, very modernist thinking. Whereas, in the case of the untrained man, such powers often manifest themselves only very partially and spasmodically and appear to come and go, as it were, at their own sweet will. Yeah. I think some people would say that's the, the lot of the untrained psychic, but really it's the lot of everyone, because, no, these aren't special powers. This is just training your basic human sensitivity. That's why in the GD we call this just sensitivity training often. It may reasonably be objected that if clairvoyant faculty is, as stated, a part of the occult development of man, and so a sign of a certain amount of progress along that line, it seems strange that it should often be possessed by primitive peoples or by the ignorant and uncultured among our own race, persons who are obviously quite undeveloped from whatever point of view one regards them. Well, there's, there's the real... Yeah, you can really see the uh, elitism and classicism coming out in Leadbeater here. How could these primitive people who are in touch with nature and live drinking ayahuasca in the jungles ever have a stronger developed sense of in touch withness with the universe and psychic ability than someone, than a noble English gentleman or a Russian madam sitting in her lofty apartments drinking tea and eating Spotted dick. Yes, how could a savage, primitive person have psychic abilities equal to them? Yes, just shocking. Just shocking. <laughs> no doubt. This does appear remarkable at first sight, but the fact is that the sensitiveness of the savage or of the coarse and vulgar European ignoramus is not really at all the same thing as the faculty of his properly trained brother, nor is it arrived at in the same way. Okay, so they're saying people who are more in touch with uh, their human nature and, and primitive lifestyles and who are shamanically developed naturally as psychics or magicians are developing a completely other thing than these proper gentlemen and madams in their uh, in their flats in London and America that's what they're saying it's a it's an atrocious argument that truly speaks to the the horrific mentality of uh, of the time which was alive and well and uh, lingers a bit today you could say an exact and detailed explanation of the difference. What's really interesting is the elitism, actually, of it is an elitism that is very alive and well today in the occult world. You have so many people saying that their version of this or their interpretation of this thing is the right or the true one or the historically accurate, accurate one or the culturally non-appropriated one. You have these claims even coming from some of the best people saying spirits are only seen this way and can't be seen this way or you see them this way it doesn't mean it means they're just your own illusions and and that you have that debate going on you have debates around the holy guardian angel as being an independent being summoned by the abermelon versus uh cognomen for the higher self um i don't think it's either of those things of course but the arguments are very interesting on on both sides
the trend towards certitude of belief is what worries me. An exact and detailed explanation of the difference would lead us into rather recondite technicalities. Oh, yes, he can't describe how different the savage's astral skills are from the gentle man or gentlewoman's because that would be just too technical. Oh, <laughs> But perhaps the general idea of the distinction between the two may be caught from an example taken from the very lowest plane of clairvoyance in close contact with the denser physical. Oh, this should be good. The etheric double in man is an exceedingly close relation to his nervous system. And any kind of action upon one of them speedily reacts on the other. Now, in the sporadic appearance of etheric sight in the savage, whether of Central Africa or of Western Europe, it has been observed that the corresponding nervous disturbance is almost entirely in the sympathetic system and that the whole affair is practically beyond the man's control. Is in fact a sort of massive sensation vaguely belonging to the whole etheric double rather than an exact and definite sense perception communicated through a specialized organ. Okay. Following. As in later races and amid higher development, the strength of the man is more and more thrown into the evolution of the mental faculties. This vague sensitiveness usually disappears. <laughs> so ignoring the whole development of the races idea, which is just, you know gross. Um, there is an interesting point. Leadbeater is saying that as we develop, like, sort of as social beings, as mental beings, you know, running factories, doing math, we lose our senses. We, we do become, have a sort of deadening of the senses, and it's then a sort of a higher spirituality, almost like William Blake's, uh, you know, higher innocence, high innocence, uh, returns as this unfolding of spirituality in later life or later development after we've sort of figured out how the world works. That's when it, it is, uh, more potent. And he says this time, however, the faculty is a precise and exact one under the control of the man's will and exercised through a definite sense organ. And it is noteworthy that any nervous action set up in sympathy with it is now almost exclusively in the cerebrospinal system. Well, I'd say that's highly debatable, but it, there's some interesting stuff there. I mean, Rudolf Steiner's whole Walder school system is based around uh, teaching certain things at certain points so that they're in harmony with the development of the aura, like leaving math till grade three, till the kid is around nine or ten, leaving room for the emotional order to develop more fully and the child to become more imaginative, sensitive, uh, less prone to uh, attention deficit and boredom and unimaginative thinking. That's the reason why the mental aura arguably is what develop after, develops after the emotional aura and therefore you'd want to leave off mental learning for a year or two beyond what most schools in the public system do. And now, a word from our sponsors. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. 
While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. On this subject, Miss Besant, Mrs. Besant writes, the lower forms of psychism are more frequent in animals and in very unintelligent human beings than in men and women in whom the intellectual powers are very well developed. They appear to be more connected with the sympathetic system, not with the cerebrospinal. The large nucleated ganglionic cells in this system contain a very large proportion of etheric matter. Oh, do they? <laughs> and are hence more easily affected by the coarser astral vibrations than are the cells in which the proportion is less. As the cerebrospinal system develops and the brain becomes more highly evolved, the sympathetic system subsides into a subordinate position and the sensitiveness to psychic vibrations is dominated by the stronger and more active vibrations of the higher nervous system. It is true that at a later stage of evolution, psychic sensitiveness reappears, but it is then developed in connection with the cerebrospinal structures and is brought under the control of the will. But the hysterical and irregulated psychism of which we can see so so many lamentable examples is due to the small development of the brain and the dominance of the sympathetic system. Wow. Well, since clearly uh, the doctors and scientists of our day aren't trying to figure this stuff out, I guess the occultists and psychics get to keep saying whatever they want and make their their wild speculations on physiology and astral fluid. (laughs) Oh, God. Let's not forget this was a time where stores put out signs saying no blacks, no Irish, no Italians, and the dictionary classified Irish and black people, for example, as subhuman species. Let's not forget this is the era we're talking about. Um, Doesn't mean there isn't some good insights in these sort of thinkers, as we've seen, but it also comes with its baggage. If we're going to be proper hermeneutes about this in and interpret things properly through to their full critical circle, we can see the things that stand out and are clearly wrong or that repulse us about the structures that society and human life that lead to the problematic forms of thinking and argumentation and base assumptions uh, that we find in older writings. And then we can be critical and look at how those same problems exist and manifested to, are manifested today and uh, stand out in our society and in our structures. So we can think about those two things in, in comparison and get a very clear idea of what's actually wrong, and not just what suits our agenda today, right? Occasional flashes of clairvoyance do, however, sometimes come to the highly cultured and spiritual-minded man, even though he may have heard of the possibility of training such a faculty. In this case, such glimpses usually signify that he is approaching the stage of his evolution when these powers will naturally begin to manifest themselves, and their appearance should serve as an additional stimulus to him to strive to maintain that high standard of moral purity and mental balance without which clairvoyance is a curse and not a blessing to its possessor. Wow, this is some fascinating stuff. 
between those who are entirely unimpressible and those who are in full possession of clairvoyant power, there are many intermediate stages. One to which it will be worth while to give a passing glance is the stage in which a man, though he has no clairvoyant faculty in ordinary life, yet exhibits it more or less fully under the influence of mesmerism. Oh, here we go. This is a case in which the psychic nature is already sensitive, but the consciousness is not yet capable of functioning in it amidst the manifold distractions of physical life. Hmm. It needs to be set free by the temporary suspension of the outer senses in the mesmeric trance before it can use the diviner faculties which are but just beginning to dawn within it. But of course, even in the mesmeric trance, there are innumerable degrees of lucidity, from the ordinary patient who is blankly unintelligent to the man whose power of sight is fully under the control of the operator and can be directed whithersoever he wills, or to the more advanced stage in which, when the consciousness is once set free, it escapes altogether from the grasp of the magnetizer and soars into fields of exalted vision, where it is entirely beyond his reach." Another step along the same path is that upon which such perfect suppression of the physical as that which occurs in the hypnotic trance is not necessary, but the power of supernormal sight, though still out of reach during waking life, becomes available when the body is held in the bonds of ordinary sleep. Man, there's so much easier ways we would say these things these days. At this stage of development stood many of the prophets and seers of whom we read who were warned of God in a dream or communed with beings far higher than themselves in the silent watches of the night. I do like the poetry, I must say. Most cultured people of the higher races of the world have this development to some extent. Dear God, it's almost, it's almost as bad as... Alice, Alice Bailey and its <laughs> racism, pure racism, higher races of the world. Some races are more evolved and naturally better and superior to other races. Can you believe this shit? That is to say, the senses of their astral bodies are in full working order and perfectly capable of receiving impressions from objects and entities of their own plane. I think today we would actually say it's flipped on its head. We would say the more primitive and uh, tribalistic races are the ones who are more in touch with this stuff. That would be the vogue these days, whereas back then it was uh, it was quite the opposite. It was the higher class or, you know, well, they're talking about themselves as being the most developed and superior. It's really not that uncommon for people in, in not just spirituality, but in every field to think that their field or they themselves and their, their community is the most developed or evolved. You see this in most academic departments as well. It's, it's, I see it with uh, historians all the time, um, thinking that because, they don't get into the nitty-gritty of any one subject. They have a perfect overall view of everything. But the truth is you don't really understand a thing until you get into the nitty-gritty of it. So there's that dilemma. Some people, let's not consider them higher races. Let's just say there are those who are sensitive and their astral bodies are in full working order and perfectly capable of receiving impressions from objects and entities of their own, that is, the astral plane. Leadbeater then says, but to make that fact of any use to them, so this is talking of the people who would be looking for magical orders, getting into spirituality, witchcraft, druidry, shamanism, everything. 
anyone who's sensitive feels that they're in tune with that sort of spiritual energy and looking at developing it, this is who that he's talking about. Ignore that he thinks it's just these higher races. It's so stupid. But to make that fact of any use to them down here in the physical body, us, of use to us, to change, two changes are usually necessary. First, that the ego shall be awakened to the realities of the astral plane and induced to emerge from the chrysalis formed by his own waking thoughts and look around him to observe and to learn. And secondly, that the consciousness shall be so far retained during the return of the ego into his physical body as to enable him to impress upon his physical brain the recollection of what he has seen and learnt. See, that's really where there's some, some gold here. This is fascinating. So it's one thing to be able to have sensory spiritual experiences or to travel or see things, but if you can't bring your conscious mind, your ego with you, your ruach, as the Kabbalists call it, into those higher realms then you may not be able to remember them or recollect them properly. And we see this with not just dreams, but um, many, many things from scryings to deja vus to lucid dreaming. Uh, the challenge often in astral travel is to be able to remember all the details afterward. Some people don't have that challenge. Some people really do. Sometimes if I'm scrying or working with a spirit, I'm able to write down things it's saying and have quite a good back and forth, but if I go into more of an ecstatic state or trance to commune with that spirit and I have no one to write things down, I can communicate, but I'm not physically awake enough. My body's limp and I can't write things down and I may not remember them fully in every instance. It really depends on how diligent I am about my work and preparation for that experience and then how ecstatic and... Um, profound <laughs> that's experiences the training really with uh path working in tarot to lead up to that kind of advanced tatwa or knocking ether or scrying or astral travel work is really essential tarot contemplation ritual still i'm going to keep saying it most powerful technique along with meditation one and the other meditations that you can probably do in hermetic practice anyway if the first of these changes has taken place, the second is of little importance, since the ego, the true man, <laughs> will be able to profit by the information to be obtained upon that plane, even though he may not have the satisfaction of bringing through any remembrance of it into his waking life down here. Students often ask how this clairvoyant faculty will first be manifested in themselves, how they may know when they have reached the stage at which its first faint foreshadowings are beginning to be visible. Cases differ so widely that it is impossible to give to this question any answer that will be universally applicable. That's very true. Some people begin by a plunge, as it were, and under some unusual stimulus become able just for once to see some striking vision. And very often in such a case, because the experience does not repeat itself, the seer comes in time to believe that on that occasion he must have been the victim of hallucination. Others begin by becoming intermittently conscious of the brilliant colors and vibrations of the human aura, either I'd say through clairvoyance or clear sentience, and feeling those energies as some people have as their primary sense more than seeing. You'll find people who see better than feel will always right, assume that everyone sees better and 
vice versa. Like all those empath people will be like, oh, it's all just feeling and not realizing if you develop that enough, you'll, your sight will come along. You develop secondary senses through the primary sense, not by working on the secondary sense directly. That's the crucial thing to always know, which most people don't realize. Yet others find themselves with increasing frequency, seeing and hearing something to which those around them are blind and deaf. Others again see faces, landscapes, or colored clouds floating before their eyes in the dark before they sink to rest. While perhaps the commonest experience of all is that of those who begin to recollect with greater and greater clearness what they have seen and heard on the other planes during sleep. Having now to some extent cleared our ground, we may proceed to consider the various phenomena of clairvoyance. They differ so widely, both in character and in degree, that it is not very easy to decide how they can most satisfactorily be classified. We might, for example, arrange them according to the kind of sight employed, whether it were mental, astral, or merely etheric, we might divide them according to the capacity of the clairvoyant, taking into consideration whether he was trained or untrained, whether his vision was regular and under his command, or spasmodic and independent of his volition, whether he could exercise it only when under mesmeric influence, or whether that assistance was unnecessary for him, whether he was able to use his faculty when awake in the physical body, or whether it was available only when he was temporarily away from that body in sleep or trance. All these distinctions are of importance, and we shall have to take them all into consideration as we go on, but perhaps, on the whole, the most useful classification will be one something on the lines of that adopted by Mr. Sinnott in his Rationale of Mesmerism, a book, by the way, which all students of clairvoyance ought to read. In dealing with the phenomena, then, we will arrange them rather than according to the capacity of the sight employed than to the plane upon which it is exercised, so that we may group instances of clairvoyance under some such headings as these. 1. Simple clairvoyance, that is to say, a mere opening of sight, enabling its possessor to see whatever astral or etheric entities happen to be present around him, but not including the power of observing either distant places or scenes belonging to any other time than the present. 2. Clairvoyance in space. The capacity to see scenes or events removed from the seer in space, and either too far distant or or for ordinary observation or concealed by intermediate objects. 3. Clairvoyance in time. That is to say, the capacity to see objects or events which are removed from the seer in time or, in other words, the powers of looking into the past or the future. Next we'll look at part two, simple clairvoyance, a full. And I will, of course, continue to share my thoughts and reflections based on my own experiences in working the various systems I have learned. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature, as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information 
to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk